Titus, at chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to take one of the chairback Bibles that should be in a chairback nearby you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 998. If you're new to us here at Redeemer, it is our normal practice and desire to simply preach through God's Word, observing the whole counsel of God revealed in Scripture. And so what that means is we just work book by book through the Bible, trying to balance both Testaments, working our way through the various genres that we do find in sacred Scripture. And so since the beginning of July, we've been in a short series of sermons from the Apostle Paul to his young friend Titus, these studies of of Titus, and it'll end in just about two weeks' time, uh, Lord willing, and then we'll be picking up after Labor Day what I presume will be a much longer study through the first book of the Bible, uh, the book of Genesis, as we turn our attention to that book of beginnings. But before we get there, we want to deal with today's text, which is verses 1 through 3 of Titus chapter 3. So let me read the passage for us and then pray that God would bless our study, and then we will begin our time together. So hear now as God speaks to you through his perfect and powerful word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? And the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's bow in prayer once more. Father, we do thank you that you are a God of truth, that every word that comes from your mouth, does not return void. Send it among us this morning, Lord, that you might accomplish its purpose in our hearts, and we pray that those purposes would be to build us up in Jesus Christ, to convict us where we must be convicted by the Spirit, that we might increase in godliness, that we might increase in love for you. So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Uh, Give me a mouth to preach with boldness and clarity as your word says I must. And we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. John Wooden was nicknamed the Wizard of Westwood. Some of you know this legendary men's basketball coach at UCLA who won 10 NCAA championships in 12 years, seven championships in a row, Records that still stand to this day. And he was well known for his coaching philosophies. Uh, one pillar of those, or of his coaching philosophy, was his attention to the basics, his focus on the fundamentals. And if you've ever heard any of his former players talk about his attention to those most basic things of basketball, uh, you'll know that he had many kind of quirks about how he focused on the basics. One of my favorite stories came from future Hall of Fame basketball player named Bill Walton, who at the time when he was a freshman at UCLA went into his first practice at Pauley Pavilion, and he sat down in his seat, you know, waiting for Coach Wooden to arrive, eager to learn what the drills were going to be that day, what lesson this famous coach was going to instruct him in. And so 
Coach Wooden sits down, and all the freshmen along with Bill Walton, they, they lean in, eager to, to reap the wisdom of this sage of the court. But all the seniors are leaning back in their chairs, smirking, because they know what the first lesson always is every year. Coach Wooden says, everybody take off your shoes and socks. We're going to learn how to put them on properly. Bill Walton looks around and says, is he serious? Is this a practical joke, a, a hazing of freshman basketball players? And he says, it all begins at the bottom. Success starts from the ground up. And he was saying is if you don't tie your shoes right, if you don't put your socks on right, you'll get blisters. And we won't be able to have you play on the team. So figure out how to tie your socks and, or tie your shoes and put on your socks right. There was a focus on the most basic of things. And if, if you've been paying attention with us in Titus, he is focusing, the Apostle Paul is focusing on the most basic matters of godliness, as he says, that accords with sound doctrine. The most basic fundamentals of the Christian faith, how it's expressed within our lives. And he's doing it through a series of lists throughout the letter. We saw early on in chapter 1, he put down this list of marks of godliness that were necessary for qualified leaders. And right after that, he gave us another list. But this time, it was marks of ungodliness that characterized the false teachers. And then the beginning of chapter 2, it was marks of godliness that belong to the respective generations that are in every church. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. And last week, he said that we're able to walk in that kind of godliness that befits the gospel because Jesus Christ is training us by His grace, as it were, that by the Spirit, God is placing us in the school of Jesus Christ's grace. But for the first time in this letter, what Paul is doing in our passage today is expanding our attention outside the four walls of the church. How is it that a Christian, living in accord with the gospel, growing in godliness that fits with the good news, how is such a Christian to live in the public sphere? How is a Christian supposed to relate to non-Christians? As students, this might be uniquely relevant to you this morning as you begin a new, a new school year. How are you to relate to authorities in your school, to classmates in your various subjects? So you'll want to pay attention this morning because once again, he's given us a laundry list of things that ought to be true of God's people. And you may have noticed as I read the text, there are this this continual rep repetition of to-be verbs. Be this, be this, be this, be this. It's a text that's not as much about doing as much as it is about being who you are in Jesus Christ. That's actually the point of the first two verses. Be who you are. And then briefly, we're going to look at verse 3 towards the end of our time, which says, don't be who you were. Because the theme of this text, clearly for us, is be who you are in Jesus Christ, not who you once were in sin. Be who you are now in Christ Jesus, not who you used to be enslaved to sin. We want to know what that looks like as we want to bear witness to Christ through our lives in the world. So first of all, be who you are. Notice the command that begins verse 1. Paul says to Titus, remind them. Parents, uh, you know now or maybe you remember, don't you, how oftentimes godly parenting feels like little more than authoritative reminding of your children. Remember to take a shower before you go to bed. 
Don't forget to put the dishes away. Uh, Make sure that you clean up your room before you go out with your friends. And of course, it's not just children who need reminders. It's adults, too. You know, we have apps and notification systems on our technological devices to make sure we don't forget appointments, tasks that are necessary. We need continual reminders, don't we, because our our hearts are stubborn. Our minds have short memories. And if you know your Bible well enough, you know that this, this need for reminders has been true all throughout God's people's existence. You can turn all the way back later on today and just see how it plays out in the life of God's people Israel in the book of Exodus. So for example, God's covenant people, He's redeemed them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Exodus chapter 14, He delivers them through the Red Sea, closes those seas back on top of the Egyptians, miraculously, powerfully liberating them from their enslavement in Egypt. Yet if you just turn one page in most of your Bibles to chapter 16, 45 days later, six and a half weeks later, they are grumbling, saying, I wish I was back in Egypt. Why? Because at least we had food there. Forgetting that God had just miraculously redeemed them across the Red Sea. So, of course, he's going to be able to provide manna for them from heaven. But they're prone to forget. So, God gives leaders. God gives prophets. God gives apostles. God gives pastors. So often, isn't it true that the Christian ministry is little more in its true substance than reminding God's people of the truths of who their God is and therefore who they must be in God's Son, their Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says, remind them. Them. So who's the them in verse 1? Well, if you know the context, he's just talked about these Christians in Crete. Remind the church in Crete, number one, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. What we're going to see in verse 1 is he puts together these instructions about relating to authority, and he begins with government authorities. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. If you know anything about the first century island of Crete, it was this kind of hotbed of insurrection and potential rebellion against the Roman yoke of authority. People always yearning, these Cretan citizens, they're always longing. How can we get out from underneath Rome's authority and oppression over us? And strikingly to the Christians in Crete, what Paul is telling Titus is, Titus, remind them. Submit themselves to this pagan government. Submit yourself to these ungodly rulers. And if you know the balance of the New Testament, it's because God has appointed all government authorities, rulers for the good of his people, to execute his laws of justice. So insofar as they're not demanding anything that goes against Christian conscience, Submit yourself to them, which is emphasized in the next to be verb. Notice in verse 1 as it continues, remind them to be obedient. The ordinary disposition of Christians toward their government authorities is one of obedience. We pray for them. We plead for God's blessing on their leadership. We pay our taxes. We obey their laws insofar as it promotes good and God-glorifying ends in our nation, in our state, in our city. Thirdly, as we relate to authority, we're to be ready, you notice at the end of verse 1, ready for every good work. I remember a few years ago, I was 
away from the family for two weeks in a row studying at the seminary while I was working on my doctorate. And it was a long period of time. I think it was the longest I had been away from my young kids at that point. And our second seminar of that two weeks that I was uh, out of the state ended early on a Friday morning. And so I raced off uh, to the airport to get on standby because instead of coming home after the kids went to bed that Friday night, if I could get on standby, then I would be home just after lunchtime and get to enjoy some time with him after being gone for almost 14 days. And so, of course, I got on the standby list. And as you know, if you've ever flown standby before, you just pop yourself down in the gate and you have one eye out for the gate monitor looking at your name on the queue and see if you're getting closer to the top. And then one ear out for the gate attendant summoning you to sit at your standby seat on the the plane to get home earlier than you were expecting. And that kind of standby readiness is what Paul's communicating here at the end of verse 1, in the kind of readiness that Christians are to have in good works, ready to do good to others, ready to do good to our neighbors, to our authorities, to our friends, to our co-workers. You know, we said last week, if you look back up just a couple verses before, verse 14 of Titus chapter 2, One of the reasons Christ redeemed his people was to purify them. Verse 14 says he redeemed us to purify us, people for his own possession, that we might be zealous for good works. Uh, We said last week how that word zealous, it comes from a a verb that means to boil. Christians are to be boiling, hot, zealous, ready, on standby for good works, steeped in the love of Christ that's inflaming the soul that we might do good to our neighbors, that they might see our good works, as Jesus says, and glorify our Father in heaven. This is the kind of way we are to relate to authority. And then as Paul continues in this instruction of be who you are, he now speaks in verse 2 about relating to everybody. So he moves from relating to authority to relating to everybody. Because just look at the end of verse 2. The audience he has in mind for these two negative commands, don't do this, two positive commands, do do this, is toward all people. This is who we are to be toward all people. And you'll see how he begins in verse 2. Remind them to speak evil of no one. The word speak evil here is is more literally blaspheme. Ordinarily, it shows up in the Bible to speak about profaning the sacred. Uh, But here, in context, it's, it's more pointedly talking about speaking against another to say something against their character, to say something false against what they have done. And you'll want to make sure that you do underline and notice the universal reality of this kind of speaking. Speak evil of no one. It's not just speak evil of no one in the church. Speak evil of no one in your family. Speak evil of no one in your workplace. Not a single person are you to speak evil wanting to slay their heart through, their, through your words. So what we need to see is oftentimes in our own Christian life that words are obviously quite powerful. We can speak against another. How often when we maybe have someone come to mind quickly, if we think of them ten times throughout the week, nine of our statements about said individual are complaints and criticisms, speaking evil against someone And what's helping us along the way is if we grow in what should be true of us next as we relate to everybody is that we're to remind each other, Paul says to Titus, to be gentle. Remind them to be gentle. George Bethune was a 
very well-known and, and faithful and fruitful Dutch Reformed pastor in New York City in the 1830s, and he put some good sermons together into uh, a few different books, and, and one of his books, he put this down perhaps, no grace is less prayed for or cultivated less than gentleness. It is indeed considered rather as belonging to nature, natural disposition, I'm sorry, in external matters, then as a Christian virtue, and seldom do we reflect that not to be gentle is to be a sin. So students, here's what he's saying is, oftentimes we tend to think of someone being gentle as a personality trait. And God says it's a fruit of the Spirit. We often think of someone who is not gentle as a facet of their character. When God says to not be gentle is to sin against His holy name an offense before a holy God, to be gentle. And even this word gentle, it's kind of a hard one to communicate into English. I don't think the, the Greek word we can actually capture rightly with the English word of gentle because it's speaking about this kind of kind consideration towards the law of another. In other words, it's, it's thinking about someone in such a way where you are not demanding of them letter of the law obedience but spirit of the law faithfulness. Here's an example of what it might look like from the ministry of Jesus. You can go home later on today, maybe earmark this, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is having one of his many controversies with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And it all begins as his disciples, they're hungry, they don't have any food, they're plucking, they're, uh, they're pulling, grabbing these, these heads of grain in order to eat. The Pharisees say, look, what your disciples are doing is against the laws about the Sabbath. In other words, they're not obeying the letter of the law. And Jesus begins to instruct them to understand the spirit of the law, that man needs to eat on the Sabbath, that in your desire to strictly adhere to this rigid rule system, self-righteous understanding of Sabbath keeping, you've overthrown all gentleness with the law of God in your disposition to another. Speak evil of no one. Be gentle. Kids, you may have had a parent before tell you, if you don't have anything kind to say, don't say anything at all. Here's your biblical proof text. Parents, for that proverb to your children. Speak evil of no one. Be gentle, is what he says. Avoid quarreling. You'll see as we just missed it. It, it is one word in Greek. It means without fighting. Christians are not to be a people of fighting words. They're not to be people who are prone to complain. They're not to be a people who are prone, prone to quarreling. Not a people who are prone to arguing. Not the kind of people, if you put them in the room, fights over words, over opinions, over convictions, over statements will then break out. They tend to be people, put positively, who are peaceable. Peaceable in the company of others. Not ones that you kind of feel this catch in your spirit when they show up in the room because, you know, controversy is soon to be on the way. The kind of person, when they're absent, the meeting just seems to go that much better because they avoid quarreling, or we avoid quarreling in Christ. And you'll see this other positive command as the verse ends, that we're to show perfect courtesy to all people. Uh, just like gentleness, this word perfect courtesy in Greek, it's hard to Again, capture in English. It's why, depending on your translation you have, mine in the ESV says perfect courtesy. Yours might say something like humility, might say something like meekness, might say something like kindness or consideration. It's trying to encapsulate this entire understanding of a disposition towards another that is doing all those things. Meekness, humility, 
gentleness, kindness, consideration. And again, look at the all-encompassing nature of that perfect courtesy at the end of the verse toward all people. And students, what you want to know, even here in the Greek, there's the word all twice. Show all humility to all people. That's what God demands of his children. Thriving in meekness, thriving in gentleness and kindness. So if you're anything like me, some of you are, some of you might not be, you look at these volley of be commands, especially gentleness, no quarreling, perfect courtesy to everyone. You think, how is that ever going to be true? How is that ever going to increase in my life? And this is where it's just good to remind yourself of the good news of our spiritual union with Jesus Christ by faith. Paul will say, it's one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. He says, I entreat you. So there's this kind of like urgent command. Paul says, I urge you, Corinthians. And he's going to call on the authority of Christ in his command. And you know what he says? I entreat you by the gentleness and meekness of Jesus Christ. Do you know a Savior who is a tender lion? a spotless lamb. He doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't blow out these flickering flames. And the good news is that that is who Jesus is, so through our faith in Jesus Christ, that's who he is making us into be. A people of gentleness, a people of meekness. I think it was in 1997 that Apple really launched a campaign, a marketing campaign that led to what seems to be their takeover of the, of the entire world. And it was a, a marketing campaign that was titled Think Different. It seemed to kind of go against the Microsoft domination of the day. And so it had this black and white footage of all these legendary figures doing things different. And if you remember those commercials, an actor named Richard Dreyfus was narrating behind all of this footage saying, here's to the crazy ones. Here's to the different ones. That's what Paul is saying here of Christians living in the culture, living in the public sphere. Here's to the ones that are different in Jesus Christ. They avoid quarreling. They're gentle, perfect courtesy to all people, obeying, submitting to ruling authorities, speaking evil of no one. Don't we know how different such people are in the culture where we find ourselves. And Paul is saying here to Titus, remind them, be who you are. And now in verse 3, he says, don't be who you were. Don't be who you were. Because he's going to begin to give, and we're going to deal more actually with verse 3 next week, because verse 3 through 7 is this long sentence, one long sentence in Greek, and he's giving reasons for the rationale of how we're to live in the world. And you'll see in verse 3 what he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. I hope you see the logic of Paul's argument. We'll deal more with the words next week because we want to see them next to what he says in the contrast of verse 5 and following. But this is who you were, people who are harsh. This is who you were people who spoke evil and hated one another. This is who you were people who were disobedient. This is who you were people who couldn't do good for one another. And the gospel, of course, comes in verse 5 and 6, if you just scan your eyes there, but the loving kindness of God has appeared to us and he has saved us. This is who you were. No longer live as though you're bound to sin 
and you're enslaved to Satan. Live as though indeed the chains of passions and pleasures are broken in your life that you might be who you are. And I want you to know if you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, verse 3 is actually who you are. And you want to notice what he's emphasizing there. This idea of enslaved to sin, bound to the kingdom of darkness, unable to do any good that could earn you anything before God, chained to the own iniquity of your own heart, and there is nothing you can do to break those chains. There's nothing you can do to let loose those bonds. There's nothing you can do to open the prison gates that you find yourselves in. But Jesus Christ can. He can break those chains by turning from your sin and trusting in Him, His perfect life, His sacrificial death, victorious resurrection, reigning ascension to the Father's right hand. What you will find yourself is liberated, let loose, freed to obey, free to grow in the Spirit. You're not who you once were. Now, be who you are. Be who you are in Jesus Christ, not who you once were, fast bound to sin and iniquity. I think it was in 2009 at the church where I was an associate pastor at uh, the moment we won spring in and around 2009, we went up to a pastor's conference, those of us on staff, and one of the main speakers was Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. And his first sermon is one I'll never forget for just like a couple sentences that he said. I do hope you know how most sermons are like most meals. It's nourishment that we forget. Every so often there's something you remember, something that sticks with you. And this was one of them. His first sermon was this exposition of the power of the tongue from James chapter 3. And he along the way was talking about how there's power in the tongue to crush another's spirit. There's power in the tongue to kill another's spirit. And then he said this, and this is what I have always remembered. I sometimes wonder if this crushing of another's spirit through our speech is a distinctively evangelical sin Of course, it is by no means exclusively so. But how commonplace it seems to hear a fellow Christian's name mentioned in some context or other, and the first words of response demean his reputation, belittle him, distance him from acceptance into the fellowship, although this is a brother for whom Christ has died. Words are powerful, aren't they? You you see it in our text, don't you? How much of these characteristic and characteristics and marks are about speech. So as we begin to close in terms of how do we be who we are in Jesus Christ, grow in the kind of godliness that befits the gospel, I want to point attention to our tongues, to our words, to our speech. The first thing we want to notice is that gospel living people do pay attention to their tongue. James 3, 8 says, who can tame the tongue? Maybe sometimes you feel that with your own life. Who can tame this wild weapon inside my mouth. The good news is Jesus can. And for those of you who are in Christ, the point of this passage is Jesus is taming that weapon to be a tool for good, a tool for edifying one another, encouraging one another in Jesus Christ, using our tongues to build up one another. I often wonder even though this passage is clearly talking about a Christian's relationship to a non-Christian, 
to non-Christian governing authorities. If with these kind of matters, we don't understand the actual import of what Paul is saying in the passage, insofar as if we cannot tame our tongue here, why would we ever do it out there? If we can't speak kindly of one another here as brothers and sisters in Christ, why would it ever be true of us out there? Gospel living people pay attention to their tongue. Gospel loving people, number two, pay attention to their tone. I remember playing in this band, playing guitar for a guy who kind of taught me everything I ever have learned about the guitar. And one day we were practicing and the song that we were playing, the uh, lead lick belonged to me and I played it. I played it with a smile on my face because I thought I played it right. He turned around from the microphone and looked at me like, what on earth did you just play? And I thought, I hit all the right notes, didn't I? And he said, too much distortion. Pay attention to the tone. It needs to be bright to cut through. You see a tone here, don't you? If you really rest in Paul's instructions in the pastoral epistles, there is a tone to the Christian life that we dare not miss. The gentleness and meekness of Jesus Christ is what is to mark God's people. There's a sense in which meekness is marvelous. Gentleness is grand. Tenderness is the tone that should define our life together here and our life towards others out in the world. Gospel living, gospel loving people pay attention to their tongues. They pay attention to their tone as they live faithfully in Jesus Christ. So what you're seeing throughout this book of Titus is that the gospel is not just this doctrine to be believed. It's this spiritual dynamic to be experienced to live in, to adorn with good works and godliness. And so we want to pray even as uh, the great pastor John Newton once spoke of in one of his letters that the Lord would give us a gentle and loving spirit towards all people and a practical conviction that grace alone has made us different. By faith in Jesus Christ, he's put us in his school of grace to train us in godliness that belongs with the gospel. Godliness towards one another in here Godliness towards all people out there. A godliness that increasingly looks like who we are in Jesus Christ. Not who we once were in our slavery to sin. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you are a God who is kind to us. Patient with us. That you are long-suffering with your church who is prone to wander. Father, we pray that you would grow us to reflect Christ, to be full of the Spirit, that we might abound in good works, that this church body might be a place that edifies one another, that thrives in gentleness, that we might indeed bear a faithful witness to Jesus Christ throughout our life together. So we pray that you would sustain us by your power, you would nourish us by your promises as we want to grow in these matters. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.